My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. So we're talking about identity. Who do people think you are or what do people think about what you do? So I have two humorous stories to start. Both of them made Vicky laugh yesterday when I tried them out on her. So the story goes like this. Moses and Jesus decided to go golfing together. And while they were golfing, they came up to a water hazard. Moses very carefully chipped right to the front of the hazard and then over the water. Jesus picks up a three iron. Moses says, what are you going to do with that? He says, I'm going to hit it over the hazard. Moses says, you can't do that. Jesus says, Tiger Wood could do it. I could do it. He lines up his shot and plop right in the water hazard. Moses sighs and he says, I'll take care of this. And he walks over, he parts the water, he walks in, picks up the golf ball, walks out, puts the water back, hands the golf ball to Jesus. Jesus puts it down and he picks up the three iron. And Moses says, what are you going to do? He says, I'm going to hit it over the hazard. Tiger Woods can do it. So can I. And whoosh, plop right in the water hazard. Well, Moses rolls his eye, goes over, parts the water, gets the golf ball, brings it back, hands it to Jesus. He says, that's the last time you are on your own. Jesus is fine. And he picks up the three iron. Here we go. Whoosh, plop right in the water. Jesus says, that's okay, I'll get it. He goes out to the water hazard and he walks across the top of the water and he bends down to pick up the ball. Just as another golf cart is coming up full of people and they say to Moses, who does he think he is, Jesus Christ? And he says, no, Tiger Woods. It's one of my favorites. Now, true story, a little girl's grandfather had served in the Navy SEALs and she was so proud of him, she took him to school for show and tell. Kindergarten kid, all the five and six-year-olds sitting there, and he told about the training to be a Navy SEAL and all his missions that he was allowed to talk around the world and how he defended our nation. And when he was all done, he said what any good speaker says. Are there any questions? Little boy raised his hand. He says, yeah, what can I do for you? He says, can you balance a ball on your nose? What do people think about you? Now, I, I need to paint a picture for you here because Caesarea Philippi is in Israel, but it's in the north of Israel, right by Lebanon. And it was a Roman colony, a Roman town. And it had Roman temples. It had an amphitheater. I actually had the privilege to sing in that amphitheater. It, it's amazing. The sound truly travels everywhere, like a, a big coliseum. And they had, and I had to look this word up, but they had an esplanade. And an esplanade is a big open space. The Italians would call it a piazza. And all around they had little cutouts in the wall to all of the gods. The Romans didn't want to offend anybody or anybody's god, so they worshipped them all. In fact, the god of that city of Caesarea Philippi was Pan, where we get the word panorama and pantheistic. It means everything. We worship them all. It was also at the foot of Mount Hermon, which is the tallest mountain in Israel. You would think this is odd, but 
you can actually ski there in the winter. It's so high that it still has snow. And when that snow melts, it comes down and it gets absorbed and there are, there are springs and it's lush and green, much like our God's Cathedral behind the church. It's a very beautiful place. And if you want to get away from hanging out in the desert, you would take a vacation up to Caesarea Philippi. I'm catching up. So, I imagine that Jesus, and I'm using my God gift of imagination here, but imagine that Jesus is walking on the esplanade, this big piazza with all of these foreign gods cut out, and it was not unusual. Well, let's do it this way. Have you ever been driving along and you see a, a little teddy bear or flowers or a cross on the side of the road? That's exactly how they would worship these gods. Well, my God is thus and so, and as I walk through the esplanade, I would drop off my offering in front of that God. So there's all these cutouts in the wall and all of these offerings. And Jesus says, now, are you getting the picture here? Jesus says, who do people say that I am? In other words, <laughs> with all these gods around... How am I doing? Reminds me of Mayor Koch in New York. Do you remember Mayor Koch, those of a certain age? Whenever he started his speech, he would shout out, How am I doing? And the people would answer him. So, Jesus, in essence, says to the disciples, How am I doing? Now, there's, there's two ways he asked the question. One is, How does everybody around me talk about me? What are the rumors and what are they saying behind my back? And the other one is, what do you say about me? So if you remember from the scripture, the di disciples said, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say Jeremiah. Some say Elijah. And some say another prophet come back to life. Well, John the Baptist had just been recently put to death. And his main purpose in the eyes of the people, not in the eyes of Jesus was that he called the leadership to task. He spoke against the corruption at the temple, and he spoke against the corruption and the infidelity of Herod the king. And they thought, well, maybe God was so happy with John's anointing that he just moved it to Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Jeremiah, Jeremiah had a rough job. Jeremiah was the prophet at the very end of the kingdom of Judah. And his main job was to tell the people, this is your last chance. You have to repent. You have to follow God's word. Or the Babylonians are going to come. The Babylonians are going to come. The Babylonians are going to come. And guess what? The people were surprised when the Babylonians came. It's very much like, and I used to teach this to my kids at the college, learning happens more from when you experience it than when you read it. So, our grandson Theo is now old enough to walk around. And you know, usually at Thanksgiving, you put the bird in and you turn on the little light, and then you all get to watch the bird turn brown. Well, you little boys are fascinated by that. And they go up and they look in that little window, and then they do this. And what do we say? Hot. And we move them away. But that's too cool 
to stay away from. So the little boy goes back. Hot, we say. And sooner or later, the little boy is going to get past our line of defense. He's going to put his hand right on that little window. He's going to look at you in surprise and say, hot. I kid. I told you it was hot. That's the same thing Jeremiah did. And Jesus, if you read the scriptures, is coming to hold the kingdom of Israel to task. You are not doing what God wants you to do. He could have been Jeremiah. Think about Elijah, the other prophet they named. Elijah did miracles. He healed the sick. He increased the oil. Remember, he filled all those jars for the widow, just like Jesus broke the bread and the fish. He made the weather stop raining for three and a half years. Jesus calmed the storm. And I don't know if you know this story. We don't talk about it a lot, but Elijah actually raised somebody from the dead. Jesus did all of those things. It wasn't a big leap for them to say he could be Elijah. Also, Scripture said that Elijah was going to come back before we saw the Messiah. Now, Jesus, if they were listening, had already said that John the Baptist was Elijah. But I got to tell you, as a preacher, I know that not everything I say you will remember. No matter how well I say it, you'll probably only remember the joke about Tiger Woods. It's a good one, right? So Jesus had already said John the Baptist was Elijah, but he did all of those things. Well, now that Jesus has established with the disciples what the community of faith thinks about him, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, or another prophet, he looks them in the eye and says, Who do you say that I am? And I believe, and maybe he was preaching in a place like this, there were crickets. That's one of the ones where, well, I think I might know the answer, but I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. I don't want to be corrected. And I think there was one of those awkward pauses. Now, in music, we stole a word from French, and the word is cessure. It means to cease, to stop. Uh, if you're a musician, it's when you draw the two lines and we call it railroad tracks. That's a caesar. So Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And whoosh, Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now let's break that apart. You are the Christ. Christ is the Greek word Christos, which was translated in the Septuagint, the first Greek translation of the Old Testament, from the word Messiah. It means anointed one. I want you to get the picture of Samuel anointing David as king, or when Moses anointed Aaron as the high priest, because we know that Jesus was both the priest and the king, right? You are the anointed one, the son of the living God. I want you to hear that, living God. Now, Isaiah loves to talk about idols. And I, I love this. If you're taking notes, in Isaiah 44, 16 and 17, he says, you take a piece of wood. Half of it you burn in the fire and half makes an idol. And then you pray to it saying, save me, you are my God. And he says, how can you pray to something that you're going to use later on to cook your dinner? 
Jesus is the son of the living God. He's not made out of silver. He's not made out of stone. He's not made out of wood. He's made out of the essence of God because he was God. Jesus then responds to Peter. And he says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven did. And there's four things that Jesus tells us and Peter. The first one is often misunderstood. He changes Simon's name to Peter, and Peter means rock, Petros. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. And people think that the church is built on Peter and the throne of Peter, and you've got the whole Roman Catholic Church. But I I think that's a misconception. I think the rock is this truth, this foundation, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is both our God and our Savior, and that's the truth we need to build the church on. The second thing he says is that nothing will be able to stand against that truth, the rock. No matter what the Satan or the world or other religions say, teach, or believe, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. The rock is the truth of Jesus Christ, and that rock is what the church needs to build upon. The third thing is this. He says, I give you the keys to the kingdom. Now, that's why in all those jokes about heaven, I tell you, Peter is always at the door because he has the keys. But I don't believe that's where Jesus was headed. The Old Testament had a key to heaven and the New Testament had a key to heaven. And the Old Testament key was this. Follow God's laws. Sacrifice when you have praises or sins. And you will find your way into heaven. The New Testament key is this. Jesus came to forgive our sins and grace us with God's love. We often preach one key without the other. There are churches that are always pounding on the law. Pounding, pounding, pounding. You have to follow the law. But Paul made that very clear in Romans. That all that does is make you feel more guilty and less worthy. And some people only preach the love of God. God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. Everybody gets in. That's why Peter was given the keys, both sets. We need to have the Old Testament key because that's our moral compass. Our entire legal system is based on what we call the Judeo-Christian law, the Ten Commandments. And we need to remember that when the law convicts us, the only person that can save us is Jesus. We talked about this last week. You can't say, obey, earn, or learn your way into heaven. Only Jesus can get you there. And the last thing he says is that whatever Peter binds or looses will be bound and loosed in heaven. And that's the job of a preacher. Remember, Jesus was having a three-year seminary to get the disciples ready to go be fishers of men. As a preacher, I need to bind temptation. I need to bind sin. I need to tell us where the pitfalls are so that we can avoid them. And then when you fall into that pit, what's the preacher's job? 
to remind you of the forgiveness of Christ and pull you out. We pray it every week. Forgive us our debts when we fall into the pit as we forgive others. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, probably the most challenging part of this whole message, this whole passage, at the end, Jesus tells them not to tell anybody else what they already know. And we are thinking, why wouldn't they share the good news, the great news, the news that they've been waiting for for thousands of years? Well, one commentator said it's too early. And the people would come for the wrong stuff. They would come for the miracles. They would come for the teaching. They would come for the, uh, the free picnic. And they wouldn't come to actually meet the Messiah. And the other thing the commentator said was that it might ignite the Jewish and Roman leaders and they would have put him to death sooner than the appointed time. I'd like to say that I have my own perspective on this. Now, we have, we have therapists and missionaries. We have computer experts. We have nurses. We have lawyers. We have a little bit of everything on our congregation. And we have one opera singer. Now, I hope, and I'm fairly certain, that when somebody meets our friend, the therapist, they don't say, counsel me right now. Or when they meet the missionary, they don't say, I need to know Jesus, preach, right? When they meet the computer expert, they don't say, well, hold it, let me go home and get my computer and bring it back so you can fix it. And I've never seen anybody ask one of the nurses, well, could you put my IV in? However, and, and my wife will back me up on this, people meet me and, they, and somebody will say, you know, he's an opera singer, and they immediately look me in the eye and say, well, sing something. Right? Prove to me that you are an opera singer. And I look him right in the eye, and, and Vicky will bag me up on this too. I say, I'm not a trained monkey. I don't just sing because you don't believe. I believe you're a therapist. I believe you're a nurse. I, I believe you're a lawyer. I don't make you do all that stuff. Why do people feel the need to make me sing? Well, that's where Jesus is headed. If you tell people I'm the anointed one of God, they're going to say, just like they did in Nazareth when he went home to preach, well, do something. Right? Prove to us that you are who you say you are. So where does this leave us? The first question you have to answer is, who is Jesus to you? There's a pastor and author in New York, named Tim Keller. And he shares the story of a man who came to him. He was a certain uh, sexual preference. And he looked Tim Keller in the eye and he said, does the Bible hate homosexuals? And what a blessed answer Tim came up with. He says, well, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? And that he died and rose again from the dead. And the guy said, I don't believe that. He said, then why do you care what's in the Bible? People today are putting the cart before the horse. I won't believe because the Bible says this or the Bible says that. 
Well, that's not how it works. You have to believe, and then God will open the truth of Scripture to you. When you discover the answer to the question, who do you say that I am? You discover the answer to life. You can't judge the book until you know the author. The second thing is, and we haven't talked about this in a while, it's another pastor from New York, Craig Rochelle, talks about our life as believers. And he says that there are are three lines. We've talked about this. Three-line faith. And he says most of us are on the first line where we say, I believe in Jesus as long as it benefits me. These are the people that Jesus did not want to mass come in mass to hear him because they would keep the people who had an open heart from hearing the word. I come for the food. I come for the fellowship. I come because sometimes I need help with my bills and the church helps me out. I come for fill in the blank. That's the first line of faith. The second line says, I believe in Jesus as long as it doesn't interfere with my life. I'll go to church and I'll put money in the plate and I'll do what I need to do But I'm not going to change the things I do at home. I'm not going to change the way I think. I'm not going to change the way I live. I'm going to participate, but don't interfere with my life. And then that third line says that I believe in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I know him intimately and serve him. The question today echoes through time. We call ourselves disciples. We call ourselves believers. We are on that esplanade with Jesus, surrounded by false gods and idols. And Jesus says to you, who do you say that I am? If you've been challenged by the message after the service, please talk to one of our deacons, one of our pastors. They'd love to pray with you. Amen.